in our home as we are expecting in the next couple months a radical transition in our lives with the expecting of our first child. It's been interesting to see the transformation that has taken place in the genre of books that are stacked next to our beds. <laughs> On my side of the bed, it has gone from Alvin Plantinga's epistemology to the happiest baby on the block, and baby-wise, and tips for being a good birth partner. Fascinating stuff, I might add. And as I've been reading, I came across this article on prenatal perception. This was in an article on ABC News. Even before we're born, we knew our mother's voice and could distinguish it from other voices. That's one of the key findings of an ongoing research project by Canadian and Chinese researchers who are studying infant development. The research suggests that while still in the womb, our brains were learning speech patterns and laying the groundwork for language acquisition. The article goes on. The article said that they took 60 women in the final stage of pregnancy. All the mothers were tape recorded as they read a poem aloud. The mothers were divided into two groups. One heard the recording of the mother, and the other heard the recording of another mother who was not their own. And the studies showed that in both cases, the poem caused a change in the baby's heart rate. The heart rate accelerated among those who heard their own mother's voice and decelerated among those who heard a voice other than their mother's. In the womb, they could perceive and hear and recognize their mother's voice, their heartbeat would accelerate. Fascinating. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 41 through 45, as we look at another prenatal perception that is recorded in the Bible back in the first century. Luke chapter 1, verses 41 through 45. You know the story. Mary has just been told by the angel that she will conceive and have a son, that her son will be none other than the Son of God. The angel also tells her that Elizabeth, in her senior citizen age, is also with child. So Mary goes to the hill country of Judea and goes to the house of Elizabeth. And in verse 41, the Bible tells us, And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the baby leaped in her womb. <laughs> prenatal perception. Look at that. Mary comes into the house of Elizabeth and says, Hi, Elizabeth, I'm here. And John the Baptist, in utero, Latin for in the womb, I found out, <laughs> in utero, leaps in the womb. And in that moment, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and look at her words. 
We pick it up in verse 42. Then she spoke with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. For why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. John the Baptist, in utero, in the womb, recognized the presence of divinity. Leaped in the womb, and as we progress in our message this morning, I want to paint a picture of the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist, a unique relationship, Jesus and John the Baptist, Before birth, there was some sort of, I don't know what you call it, (laughs) in the womb, there there was some sort of acknowledgement, some sort of connection between Jesus and John the Baptist. Jesus and John were linked from birth. Even in the prophecy of the angel, she not only says that Mary will have a son, but also mentions that Elizabeth is six months pregnant. There's a connection between Jesus and John the Baptist. Not only that, in their adult years, Jesus and John were ministry partners. It was a relationship of deference and mutual respect. Look at the words of Jesus and John when they talk about one another. Jesus said regarding, I should say, John said regarding Jesus, he must increase... I must decrease. This is when the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John were having a little bit of a rivalry. The disciples of John came to John and said, look, our crowns are going down. His crowns are going up. What do we do? John said he must increase. I must decrease. Good words for those of us that are in ministry. Amen. John said of Jesus, I am unworthy to untie his sandals. Hmm. John baptized Jesus, and Jesus said about John, among those born of women, there is no greater prophet than John the Baptist. There's a lot of great prophets, Moses, Elijah, Daniel, but Jesus said the greatest prophet is John the Baptist. So you can see that even in their adult years, they were ministry partners. They were linked from birth. But it goes deeper than that. Jesus and John were family. They were related by blood. Luke chapter 1, verse 36, the Bible says, Mary and Elizabeth were relatives, and some translations actually say that they were cousins, Mary and Elizabeth. So if you follow that translation, you could argue that Jesus and John the Baptist could have been second cousins or relatives at the very least. They were related by blood. So when you put this picture together, they were linked from birth. 
In adult years, in their adult years, they were ministry partners. It was a relationship of deference and mutual respect. They spoke highly of each other. And on top of that, they were blood relatives. They were related. This was an unusual relationship. And when you take all of these factors into consideration, it is mystifying the response, or I should say, the lack of response of Jesus when John the Baptist, his cousin, got into some trouble. He had some problems. Look at it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. This is after the temptation in the wilderness. Matthew tells us, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. This is a peculiar passage because the Bible did not say when John, Jesus' cousin, was put into prison that Jesus went to go and rescue him from prison. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible uses this verb, departed. (laughs) He, He departed. How would you like that for a cousin? You're in prison and your cousin's like, all right, I'm, I'm out of here. This is an unusual passage. And you can see that in the Desire of Ages, this was an issue in the minds of the disciples. Desire of Ages, page 562. Then the disciples had wondered why Jesus, with the power to perform wonderful miracles, had permitted John to languish in prison and to die a violent death. Possessing such power, why did not Christ save John's life? Now the question is, did Jesus have the ability to free John from prison? Absolutely. You remember the story in the book of Acts when Peter was in prison? An angel came, released him from prison. This was within God's capability. He could have released him. And the Desire of Ages goes on to paint a very interesting picture because while John is in prison, it appeared from all external perception that Jesus was going about life as usual. Look at it in page 215. But Jesus seemed to content himself with gathering disciples about him and healing and teaching the people. He was eating at the tables of the publicans. So while John is incarcerated, while John is in prison, while John is behind bars and languishing and rotting away, Jesus is out there eating with publicans and sinners. He's going about ministry as usual. This was very challenging to John, and you can see that there were doubts that started to creep into the mind of John the Baptist while he was in prison because he sent messengers to Jesus. Remember that story? And what was the question that John asked of Jesus? Look, are you the one? Or should we look for someone else? He was going into just a state of doubt, arguably depression in prison to the point that he actually doubted the mission of Jesus. A very dark time. And in Matthew chapter 14, the Bible tells us the story of how at a drunken party, Herod makes a promise that he later regretted. 
And John is executed, and the disciples of John, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 12, came and took up the body. That must have been a real, just, treat. Taking the headless body of a person that they followed, burying him in the wilderness, and after that, the Bible tells us, they made a beeline to Jesus. You can just imagine some of the sentiments that they were feeling at that time. I don't know what they said, but you can imagine what they were thinking. Jesus, here's your cousin, the person that spent his entire life for one purpose, and that was to point the way to you, your own flesh and blood, was executed. Mm. And then, you can see Jesus' response. It echoes Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus heard it, and he, what does the Bible say? He departed. Takes off again. And departed from there by boat. Mystifying response by Jesus. He departs when he hears that he's in prison, and he departs when he hears that his own flesh and blood, his cousin, has been executed. And this was a lingering question in the minds of the disciples. The desire of ages goes on in page 562. They, the disciples, wondered why Jesus, with the power to perform wonderful miracles, had permitted John to languish in prison and to die a violent death, possessing such power. Why did he not save John's life? And then it says that this question had often been asked by the Pharisees who presented it as unanswerable, as an unanswerable argument against Christ's claim to be the Son of God. In other words, this was a huge issue in the minds of not only the disciples, but also the minds of Christ's enemies, the Pharisees. They said, look, how can he be the Son of God? Who would treat someone like this? Here is John the Baptist. Jesus clearly has power. He can raise the dead. He can feed thousands. Why didn't he intervene and save John's life? And the Desire of Ages says that this was a question that no one had answers to. It created serious challenges in the minds of even people that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And the book of Habakkuk summarizes the real challenge that we have with this narrative of John the Baptist. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? You can see the argument here. In other words, God, you hate evil, don't just stand there. Please do something. Please intervene. Now we know that Jesus, that God is not the originator of evil. But the question that Habakkuk is asking that applies to John the Baptist's situation is why don't you intervene in circumstances like this? And this is a question that we've asked 
At some point in our lives, if we have not, someday perhaps you will, God, why didn't you save my child from this rare genetic disease? God, why didn't you save my parents from this tragic accident? Why did my father have to die of cancer? These are lingering questions that we face. Why did you not intervene? And then we have other miracle stories that we hear all the time of this miraculous healing where God clearly intervened in the life of this individual, but in the life of our loved one, it seems that God has abandoned us. How do we process this? Why them and not me? Why did you save Peter from prison and not John the Baptist? These are serious questions that people have, and I have a former colleague of mine served the Lord for the majority of his adult life, sacrificed. People were saved as a result of his ministry, had talents and gifts. He was diagnosed with cancer. And I remember they had an anointing service for him. And everybody just knew that he would be healed. Absolutely no doubt. The work of God could be furthered by this man being alive. And I remember watching him up front in the midst of his chemotherapy, singing and leading song service with joy, claiming God's promises and saying, I'm going to be healed. A few months later, his family was gathered around his bed as he was writhing in pain. He died. One of his relatives told me she never wanted to see anyone die the way that her father died. Because to the very last breath, he found no relief from the pain. And everybody is asking, why? Why don't you do something? Why don't, why don't you step in like you did for this individual? Now, I am not going to be so pretentious this Sabbath morning to claim to have answers to these types of questions, especially in a 30-minute presentation. Many of these questions we, we don't have answers to, at least this side of heaven. But if you'll permit me, I'd like to spend a little bit of time looking at three different aspects that are a part of John's narrative that will perhaps give us a little bit of picture. It won't answer all the questions, but perhaps it'll give us something on which to hold on to. And this is something that, that comes out from John's life and Ellen White's commentary in The Desire of Ages. It is what we call the eternal perspective. Now, when we think about eternity, I don't think, <laughs> at least in my mind, this is not something that is easy for me to, pra to process. How can we quantify eternity? 
This is our life. It actually should be smaller than that. That is our life. And eternity, think about it, even if you live for a trillion years, that's not even a dot in eternity. So from God's perspective, He cares about our life, amen? In the here and now. Now, I do not want to give us the notion or the impression this morning that this life is immaterial, that God does not care about our life, and that we should not ask God for things that are temporal. But we also need to recognize that from God's vantage point, as He looks back in our life, it is not just the finite 70, 80, 90, if you follow the Adventist health message, praise God for that, or 100 years of life, God is stepping back and saying, look, I want to bless you in this life, but he steps back and says, look, there is something much more than that that he wants us to be engaged in. And some people look at me and say, you know, David, that is such a stupid decision. Why are you doing that? Now, I will say that I made many stupid decisions. But there are certain eternal decisions that look from a temporal standpoint as very stupid. Look at Moses. He could have been king, and yet he put his lot with a bunch of slaves. It depends on which perspective that you look at. And from John's life perspective, he looks like a loser. Lived for 30 years, never got married, and in the prime of his life, he's executed. But when you back things up, this is a challenging aspect. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, yet what we suffer now is, what does it say? Is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Now, this is not minimizing the sufferings that we have in this life, but when you back up and look at eternity, and this is what the Desire of Ages says in page 224, death itself placed him, John, forever beyond the power of temptation. In other words, he was sealed. This is a challenging thing for me to process, even from the standpoint of eternity, but the Desire of Ages is presenting this notion that the moment that John died, he was sealed for eternity. Yes, he lived a hard life. Yes, he was executed at the prime of his life. But how can you quantify that compared to eternity? Because the next thing that John will know from his consciousness is the resurrection and eternity beyond. So when you step back and we don't look at this life as everything, eternity and that perspective helps us to say, Lord, I don't understand what and why this is going on now, but I thank you that one day 
you will explain things to me from the eternal angle. Desire of Ages 2.24, God never leads his children otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. In other words, when you stand with God on the sea of glass and you look back, you say, Lord, thank you. It was hard, but I would not have been led any other way. So the eternal perspective, something that we need to take into consideration. The other one, I'll admit to you, is difficult for me to swallow. It's the experience of suffering. Now, I want to be very clear. This is not talking about children suffering, genocide, or even suffering because of our own faults. The Bible talks about this notion in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Some people have this martyr syndrome, and they say, oh, I'm being persecuted. I say, no, you're not. You're being obnoxious. <laughs> right? It's not being persecuted when you're being persecuted for being ungodly. You need to be nice. The Bible is talking about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Peter goes on in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. But how is it to your credit if you receive, this is the NIV, a beating whew, for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. This is a part of being a Christian. Now, I know it's hard for us to swallow because we live in this age of the prosperity gospel. If you serve God, you're going to get an SUV, you're going to have a big retirement, you're going to have a big home. Just put your hand on the screen and send your donation and you'll be blessed. I mean, this is the prosperity mentality that we live in. But the biblical perspective of what it means to follow God is the suffering Christ and the suffering Christian. Now, I'm not saying that God will not bless us materially, but there is an aspect of being a follower of Jesus that involves suffering like him for righteousness' sake. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, unto you it is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. I don't know about you, but I like to avoid these types of verses. Let's move on. John chapter 15, verse 20. Jesus said, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. This is a real aspect of being a Christian and what it means. Desire of Ages goes on. Gladly would the Savior have come to John to brighten the dungeon gloom with his own presence. Gladly would have delivered his faithful servant. But for the sake of thousands who in after years must pass from prison to death, John was to drink the cup of martyrdom. This is hard. As the followers of Jesus should languish in lonely cells or perish by the sword, apparently forsaken by God and man, what a stay to their hearts would be the thought that John the Baptist, to whose faithfulness Christ himself had borne witness, had passed through a similar experience. Wow. An angle that we just can't understand. Stepping back. The suffering Christ. 
and the suffering Christian. Zarev Ages 2.24, of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, fellowship with Christ in his suffering is the most weighty trust and the highest honor. Wow. The experience of suffering, the eternal perspective, and then we have the empathy of the Savior. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Jesus understands. He knows what we're going through. Zarabajah says, Not a sigh is breathed, not a pain felt, not a throb. Grief pierces the soul, but the throb vibrates to the Father's heart. God is bending from His throne to hear the cry of the oppressed. To every sincere prayer, He answers, Here am I. There's empathy. Jesus understands what we're going through. He is there through the challenges that each one of us face. There's a book entitled Touching the Void. It's written by Simpson. He gives the account of how himself and his partner Yates were climbing a 20,000-foot mountain in the Andes of South America. And as they were climbing this mountain, Simpson fell and broke his leg. There was a storm that began to come in, and they realized that they needed to get off this mountain and fast, so they started to descend down the mountain. They needed to go at least 3,000 feet down to base camp. And through a series of circumstances, Yates and Simpson ended up in a precarious predicament. Yates was literally hanging or holding his partner Simpson over and dangling over a cliff. And because of the frostbite, Yates was unable to pull him up and Simpson was unable to pull himself up. So, and so they dangled there for what seemed an eternity. And the storm began to set in, and Yates, who was holding Simpson over the edge of the cliff, had to make a fateful decision because he realized if they stayed in that position, they would both freeze to death. And so Yates pulled out his knife, cut the rope. What a horrific predicament. Yates descended down the face of the cliff, called for his partner, could not see him, could not hear him, assumed that he had died, and went back to base camp. What had happened was Simpson fell down the cliff and into a crevasse hit his head and was knocked unconscious. Simpson awoke, realized that his partner would assume that he was dead, and what happened next was harrowing. He realized he could not crawl up the crevasse, so it's counterintuitive. What you're supposed to do is crawl down the crevasse, hoping that it will open up, and so he crawled with a shattered leg 
for miles for three days. That man crawled. Hypothermia, frostbitten, on the verge of delirium and death, came to base camp just hours before his partner Yates was about to go back to civilization. <laughs> In mountaining lore, this is esteemed as the most remarkable story. In an interview, they asked Simpson, what kept you going for three days? Crawling through snow and ice on the verge of death? Why didn't you just stop and just close your eyes and it'll be over? And you know what he said? He said the thing that kept him going was not that he wanted to avoid death. That, that, that was not the thing that kept him crawling for three days. You know what he said? He said the thing that kept me going was that I did not want to die alone. What a raw human desire. He said, look, I crawled all the way back because I wanted to die in someone's arms. It makes me think Psalms 23. <laughs> Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. <laughs> Remember what we heard? Window worship. I'm not going anywhere. Jesus says, look, I can't give you all the reasons right now why you're going through this. But I'm here. Amen. Amen. You're not alone. You don't have to go through this by yourself. And I promise you, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will, what does it say? Never. I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, the raw human desire is not to avoid suffering. It's to avoid suffering alone. And Jesus says, look, I am here. In the deepest, darkest, most traumatic moment of your life, you are not alone. I will never leave you or forsake you. And if you could peel back the curtain from the visible to the invisible, you will see God with his arms around you in the darkest moment of your life, closer than he's ever been before. Let's trust him. Amen. Through the eyes of faith, Let's believe, because it is a reality, that Jesus is not going anywhere. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are not going anywhere. We thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us. And though we feel perhaps sometimes that we've been abandoned 
That is a lie. You are closer than you've ever been before. Help us to believe with the eyes of faith that you are there. Lord, we know that we don't have all the answers. And we trust that when we stand on the sea of glass that you will give us those reasons. But right now, we thank you that you sustain us, that you have your arms around us, that you're not going anywhere. We thank you for this promise. Help us to hold fast and to endure. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.